Father, we thank you that because of what your son, Jesus Christ, has done for us, we can live in the confidence and the security of knowing that we belong to you. That you have not just called us, you will keep us and you will keep us to the end. We thank you for the promise of your word that you who began the work in us will bring it to completion at the day of your son, Jesus Christ. And that none of us can escape your hold of your grace. So fathers, we open your word this morning and as we look at our responsibility to contend for the faith, to preserve this gospel message, help us to be faithful in declaring it and help us to be faithful in living it. That we would honor you, not just with our words and with our beliefs, but with our lives. So that this good news could continue to resound in the hearts and the minds and the lives of your people. So Father, will you speak to us today a word that will edify your church and glorify your name. Father, sanctify us in the truth. Sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. We bring it to bear in our lives now. We ask all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. And everyone said, amen, amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. And as uh, you find your seats this morning, I'm gonna invite you to turn with me in your Bible to the very short letter of Jude uh, at the end of your New Testament. Again, if you're not familiar with the letter of Jude, I'm gonna give you a little bit of extra time here to find this one this morning. If you're struggling finding it, uh, you could use your table of contents at the front of your Bible or just go to the end of your Bible, uh, find the book of Revelation, and the letter of Jude is probably stuck to the letter of 3 John. Um, two very short letters here at the end of scripture, and yet both of them, uh, all of them completely significant as we're going to see today. So uh, book of Jude, I'm not gonna tell you to go to chapter one because there's only one chapter. It's just Jude uh, verses one through four is what we're gonna look at together during our time today. John Stott once wrote, the devil disturbs the church as much by error as by evil. When he cannot entice Christian people into sin, he deceives them with false doctrine. The Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University is led by George Barna. And last year, year 2022, they conducted what they called the American Worldview Inventory. And they surveyed the beliefs of a thousand Christians nationwide on a wide range of subjects. There were questions related to purpose and calling, family, the value of life, God, creation, history, faith, sin, salvation, human nature, lifestyle, the Bible, truth, and morals. And the results of the survey showed that only 37% of those who responded, responded in a way that could be defined as having a biblical worldview, meaning that they responded in a way that accords with the truth that has been revealed to us and preserved for us in scripture. And if those results aren't concerning enough, uh, let me just take this to a different level. This was not just a thousand Christians nationwide who were surveyed, this was a group of a thousand pastors. Of a thousand pastors surveyed, only 41% total uh, responded in ways that could be defined as having a biblical worldview. Among senior pastors, 41% responded in ways 
that defined a biblical worldview. Among associate pastors, it was only 28%. Teaching pastors, those whose role primarily is in teaching scripture, only 13%. Among children's ministers, children's pastors, it was 12%. And among executive pastors, it was only 4%. So nationwide, 37% of pastoral leaders, less than four in 10, responded to these questions in a way that could be defined as having a biblical worldview. Now, the, the short letter of Jude is one of the most neglected letters in the New Testament, mainly because of how small it is. You know, it's at the end of your Bible. It it butts up right against the book of Revelation, which is the one that gets all the attention, gets all the fanfare. But if the stats are any indication, this is a letter that we need to be paying much more attention to. Uh, The author of Jude is Jude, and he identifies himself as the servant of Jesus and brother of James. And this is really an act of humility because Jude was not just a servant of Jesus. Jude was actually the brother of Jesus along with James. But in humility, he chooses instead to identify himself as a servant of Christ. And as best as we can tell, this letter was written around the mid-60s AD, just a few decades after the earthly ministry of Jesus, his life and his death and his resurrection. And Jude's main reason for writing this letter is to combat apostasy within the church. Now, if you're not familiar with that term, a really simple definition for apostasy is a departure from true biblical faith in either teaching or living. So if someone is is apostate, this is someone who is teaching things or is living their life in such a way that it contradicts the truth that has been revealed to us in Scripture. And this short letter is a call to arms. Jude calls the church to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So in uh, the span of just 25 verses, Jude calls his readers to contend for the faith, and he calls them specifically to do this by condemning false teaching within the church. So we're going to study this short letter for a few weeks here for a couple of reasons. First reason we're going to study is because it has great relevance for today. Every generation of the church is under attack from false teachers. There's no generation of the church that is not going to be vulnerable, that is not going to be susceptible to the infiltration of false teachers. In fact, scripture warns us that these things will grow increasingly worse the closer we get to the return of Jesus. So every generation faces the threat of false teachers with that progressively getting worse over time. And so a second reason, then we'll study the book of Jude, is so you and I can quickly see not much has changed in 2,000 years. There's nothing that we are facing as 21st century Western American believers. There's no new sin. There's nothing under the sun. There are different manifestations of the same errors, different manifestations of the same sins that are only repeated in different forms all across the generations. Uh, yesterday, people all around the globe turned in to, tuned in to witness the coronation of King Charles for his literal crowning moment. And uh, the crown was placed on his head by Justin Welby, who is the Archbishop of Canterbury. And he's been in the news for the last 24 hours, because if you saw the video of that moment, uh, dude had a little bit of a struggle getting the crown on the king's head, right? So he's getting blasted online. The internet's doing what the internet does in moments of, of error. Um, but you may remember back in the month of February, his name came up in here uh, for a much different reason, because uh, it was earlier this year that the Global South Fellowship of Anglican Churches announced that it no longer recognized the authority of the Archbishop of Canterbury because he had departed from sound Christian teaching. He had departed from biblical teaching by uh, saying that they would now begin blessing same-sex unions. 
And so the Global South Fellowship of Anglican Churches, they made the very bold move to publicly make it known they no longer recognize the authority of Canterbury. When it comes to handling doctrine within the church, there have always been two types of leaders across the centuries. There have been those who are faithful contenders and there have been those who are faithless pretenders. The Global South Fellowship of Anglican Churches are faithful contenders. They're faithful contenders. They are fighting to preserve sound doctrine and practice. Now, uh, God in his providence just had this happen earlier today. In our first service this morning, uh, Shay Gilliard and his family visit our church. If you don't know Shay, he is the rector at St. Helena Anglican Church. And, and they are actually part of the Global South Fellowship of Anglican Churches. And so uh, I saw him in between services and said, hey, welcome to Cross Community on Anglican Sunday. And we had a, a really good conversation around this. If you see Shay and his family, encourage them. Encourage them because there are churches like his that are engaged in this, working to preserve the truth of the generations that has been passed down to the saints in scripture. So there are those who are faithful contenders. They're holding the line on the truth of the gospel, but the Archbishop of Canterbury, among others, are faithless pretenders. They are by definition apostate because they have departed from sound doctrine. They have departed from sound practice. Listen, if God indeed wills to save the king, it will not be because of the Archbishop of Canterbury. It will be in spite of him. And if that pronouncement this morning, friends, sounds too heavy to you, if that sounds too harsh to you, if you think that that is unchristlike, then allow me to introduce you to Jude because this is exactly what every generation of the church is called to do. What we're gonna see this morning in Jude one through four is that every generation of the church is called to be on guard against apostasy by contending for the unchanging truth of God's word. Friends, God's word has been delivered to us once for all and it is not subject to change. Jude is a short letter, but Jude has a really powerful message and it's one that we desperately need today. So from the book of Jude, we're gonna read again verses one through three. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. To those who were called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary. Everybody say necessary. I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Our calling is to contend for the faith. And across every generation of the church, there have been faithful contenders and there have been faithless pretenders. So let's look first in verses one through three at the faithful contenders. Jude identifies himself as a servant of Jesus. So he's a brother of James, but this also makes him a brother of Jesus. So what we quickly discern about Jude is that he's humble. He's very humble. He, he could have identified as a sibling of Jesus. You're talking about the, pretty much the most famous person who's ever walked the face of the earth, and, and Jude does not want to say, hey, that's my brother. He wants to say, I'm his servant. Now, uh, I don't know about you, but I have an older brother and a younger sister. I'm the middle child. Feel free to feel bad for me, because that means I've mostly been unnoticed uh, for, for my life. And so older brother, younger sister, and I've called my brother and my sister lots of things in, in our life together. You know, here we are like in our late 30s, drifting into our 40s, and we're still like in a competition over who mom loves the most, Right that these things never end. And so I've called my brother and sister lots of things across the last few decades. I've never identified myself as a servant of Josh. 
I've never identified myself as a servant of Brittany. Jude is the brother of the most famous person who's ever walked the face of the planet, but he doesn't say, I'm Jude, the brother of Jesus. He says, I'm Jude, the servant of Jesus. And this is significant. If you remember from the gospel accounts, Jude, among the other brothers and sisters of Jesus and his family, they rejected him. They thought he was crazy. They thought he was out of his mind. They they did not agree at all with who he was saying that he was. And yet Jude witnesses his life. He witnesses his death. He witnesses his resurrection. And he is now eager to identify as a servant. The Greek term here is doulos. It means bond servant. And it speaks to someone who has willingly submitted themselves and willingly given their lives over to the authority of another master. And so that's what Jude is saying that he is. He is someone who has willingly submitted himself to the lordship and authority of Jesus Christ. Jude is a faithful contender exhorting others to faithfully contend. And in verses one through three, we see some characteristics of contenders. First, we see that contenders are called. At the beginning of his letter here, Jude writes to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. This word called is the same word that's used in Romans 8.30 in a chain link of other words whenever Paul is laying out a theology of salvation. He says, of all who belong to Jesus Christ, they were foreknown, they were predestined, they were called, they were justified and glorified. And this is all past tense language. Paul is saying, he's speaking to something that happened before we were ever even born. And it's good news for us that this language is past tense because if God has called you, it means God has also glorified you. He has not just ordained your salvation, he has ordained that he's going to keep you to the very end. So he has called us and he's going to glorify us. We have already been glorified. If you belong to Jesus Christ, God called your name before your mother ever gave it to you. In his grace and in his wisdom and his infinite mercy, he called you to himself and you're secure in him. So being a contender for the faith starts from the foundation of being called to faith. We contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints because God in his grace and his mercy called us to to himself when we otherwise would have been dead in our sin. Because of his grace, because of his love, because of his mercy in our own lives, we are eager to preserve the gospel message from corruption. So contenders are called. Jude also shows us that contenders are beloved. Now here Jude is not just speaking to the fact that he loves them. I mean, certainly he does love them. He's their brother and, or, or, and he's their brother and they're his brothers and sisters in Christ. But this term beloved speaks to the special covenant love that every believer experiences as a child of the heavenly father. Those who have been called by God are also beloved by God. We are his beloved. We are children of the father. We enjoy a special, intimate, personal relationship with him that unites us with every other believer in Jesus Christ. So if you belong to Christ, you are his beloved. He says, contenders are called, they're beloved. And third, he shows us that contenders are kept. Beloved, he says to those who are called, beloved in God the father and kept for Jesus Christ. And here's why this one is so important to Jude's message. Jude is writing to combat apostasy within the church. He's writing to warn of those who are drifting from the true faith to teach things that are false or to live their lives in ways that contradict scripture. And if we're not careful, this is what you and I will end up doing. 
We see that danger, we see that warning, and then we put it on ourselves to say, man, I just gotta hold on to Jesus as tightly as I can. I gotta make sure I'm walking the straight and narrow. I gotta make sure I'm not listening to these voices. I gotta make sure I'm holding on to sound doctrine and, and I'm, I'm filling my mind with the word of God so that I can combat lies when I hear them. If we're not careful, what we'll end up doing is focusing exclusively on what we need to do. So yes and amen, our calling is to keep the faith, but do not forget that Jesus is keeping you. So for the moments that you are tempted to drift, for the moments that you are in the space that you're going to stumble and you're going to fall, remember that Jesus is keeping you. This is the good news of the gospel. If you have been called by God and you are his beloved, he's going to keep you from falling away. This is how Jude both opens and closes his letter. Blaine read this just a few moments ago. It's one of the most beautiful doxologies in the entire New Testament. Jude says of God, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling. And so that's what Jude tells us about who God is. If you are called by him, if you are his beloved, he's going to keep you from stumbling. He's going to keep you from drifting. You're forever united together with him. And his prayer for them in verse two is may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. So if you are a contender up for the faith, you have submitted yourself to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. The promise for you this morning is you have been called by God and you're secure in him. You are his beloved. He cares for you. You enjoy a special relationship with him that those who are apart from him do not enjoy. And he's going to keep you to the end. And as he keeps you, what he desires is for mercy and love and peace to be multiplied to you. And then in verse three, Jude gives us his purpose in writing. He says in verse three, beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So Jude actually had a different initial purpose in writing. Jude was just gonna write a simple letter to encourage them in the gospel, to remind them of who God is and, and who we were apart from Christ and what Jesus has done for us and, and to announce once again the good news of salvation as a free gift for all who repent of their sins and put their faith in Jesus Christ. That was his original plan, was just to write a letter encouraging them in the gospel, but then the Holy Spirit impresses on him something different. It's to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And I wanna pay attention to this detail for, for just a moment, because there's a mantra you'll often hear today that, that there's, I think, a good intention behind it, but if we're not careful, is actually going to lead us away from part of our responsibility as Christians. You'll often hear it said, well, you know, well, Christians, we shouldn't be known for what we are against. We should be known for what we're for. And, and, and that, that is true sometimes, like, yes, primarily, we want to be known as gospel people. We want to be known as Jesus people. We want to be known as Christ-like people. We want to be people that we, we know what we're for. We are about God's grace. We're about his mercy. We are about sharing the good news. We want to be known for these things. And yet there are times when God's word clearly calls us to be clear also about what we're against. And that's so much behind the heartbeat of Jude's letter. He had an original plan just to write them a gospel message, to write them a gospel encouragement. But listen, we can only preach the gospel if we know what the gospel is. Every generation of the church, we're not just called to preach the gospel, we are also called to preserve the gospel. 
to make sure that it's not being contaminated by false teaching, to make sure that it's not being corrupted. And so we are called to contend for the faith. This word contend comes from the language of athletic competition. So think here about two boxers in a ring. Think about two wrestlers just giving their very, very best, both of them working to gain an advantage over the other. And so we can't just, just fall back on these places and say, hey, we, we just need to focus on preaching the gospel. We just need to make it known what we're for. Church, there are times when we absolutely have the responsibility, not just to proclaim what we affirm, but also to proclaim what we deny. To, to stand on the truth and not just to stand on the truth, but to expose the errors. You know, uh, we... Um, as a church, we have a membership class. It's called Crosspoint. And this is, those of you who've become covenant members of our church, you've walked through this process before. And a key part of what we do in Crosspoint is we work through essential doctrines of the Christian faith. And what we mean by essential doctrines are the doctrines that we absolutely have to be in agreement on to even say that we're Christians. Like, so we, we work through things like the doctrine of the Trinity, where we talk about the nature of God and we talk about the nature of the scriptures and we talk about who is Jesus and who is man and what is sin and what is salvation and what is the way to salvation. We, we, we look uh, at things about the, like the image of God, the fact that all of mankind has been created in his image. So we champion both the sanctity of human life and the dignity of human life. And we lay these essential doctrines out and we say, hey, if you're gonna be a member of our church, we have to be able to stack hands at least on these things. Because if we're not in agreement on what the gospel is, how are we gonna contend together in the faith? Every generation, we're not just called to preach the gospel, we are called to preserve the gospel because if the gospel has not been preserved, then it's gonna be a false gospel that we end up preaching. So yes, preach the gospel, but eventually at times we have to draw a line. And that's what Jude does with his letter. He, he shows here that he is, he is combating apostasy. He's gonna go against those who have infiltrated the church, who have corrupted the gospel message. So contend for the faith, by the faith. What he means is the truth of the gospel message and how it applies. So through centuries, as, as heresies have arisen and, and as false teaching has arisen, the church oftentimes has developed creeds and catechisms and confessions, uh, things that allow followers of Jesus Christ to take basic biblical truths and to memorize them and to rehearse them so that when we start to hear errors, we have something we can fall back on to be reminded of what sound doctrine is. So there's you know, the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, and there's uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith, and there's the Heidelberg Catechism, and there's all these documents, there's all of these, uh, the, these resources that have been developed through history so that the faith of the saints can be preserved for all. And so whenever we're talking about contending for the faith, we are talking about contending for those things that are essential to salvation things that are essential to sound teaching about the gospel message and the application of that message in our living. So contending for the faith means not just contending for a set of beliefs, but it's contending for living appropriately and accordingly in step with those beliefs. Please understand this this morning. God is not just after your intellectual agreement with a set of doctrines on paper. You understand this? It's not just, he's not content with us just like reading a doctrinal statement saying, hey, I don't have any major discrepancies there. And I can agree to this. As a church, we should not just be concerned about orthodoxy, sound doctrine. We should also be concerned about orthopraxy, which is sound living. 
The way that we can know the truths of scripture, the way that we can know the truth of the gospel has truly infiltrated our lives is not just that we know it in our heads and can recite it and say, this is what I believe, but that we have actually believed it in our hearts to the extent that it, it, it's working its way out in our hands and in our lives. We're actually living out the doctrine that we claim to believe. And so Jude is writing to address both of these He combats false doctrine. He combats false teaching because false doctrine and false teaching are going to lead to apostasy and false living. It's gonna lead people away from the truth. This faith has been passed down to us once for all. It doesn't change. When you hear those words once for all, what you should be hearing is Jude saying, the word of God is never going to change. Scripture has been handed down once for all. God has spoken once for all. What has been recorded and preserved for us in Scripture, this was God once for all in writing, giving everything he desired for his people to have for sound teaching and practice. And and man, this this has just really been uh, under threat within the church, particularly over the last couple of decades. Um, This has been going on for a couple hundred years, but you see a lot of it excuse me, happening today, which has to do with the practice of of interpretive methods known either as progressive revelation or trajectory hermeneutics. What progressive revelation and trajectory hermeneutics attempt to do, it's attempt to get us to think there are things we are responsible for uncovering ourselves that have not been uncovered in the word of God. And so oftentimes, uh, particularly in order to justify sexual sin in the 21st century, this is what you'll often hear people say. Well, for centuries, the Bible was used to defend slavery. So, so that's the error that has also been made is the Bible has been used to defend this definition of marriage between a man and a woman and, and as sex being a relationship only between a man and a woman. So the, the scripture has, has actually been misinterpreted in those ways. And it's been our responsibility to learn things that were foreign to the first century hearer. So they say, well, well, there was no justification of sexual sin in the first century because they didn't have a concept. They didn't have an understanding of how these things could come into being. And so it's our responsibility to uncover really what the word of God just kind of set up for us. And, and you hear all of that and you're like, well, well, yeah, man, the Bible was used to justify slavery for a long time. So who are we to say that we've not been using it and abusing it in order to put those who are in different sexual categories off to the side. But here's, here's the problem with this, is yes, the Bible was used to justify slavery, but it was used wrongly. Church, like, like read scripture. If you, if you interpret it appropriately in its context and you see the heartbeat really behind what was going on, you will not find any justification whatsoever for anything that looks like the slavery system we experienced here in the United States. You won't find anything. What you will find is through the centuries is people who ripped pieces of scripture out of context and twisted it and manipulated it to make it say what they wanted to say in order to justify sin. There have been faithful warriors for the gospel for every single generation who spoke out against slavery. You think about Charles Spurgeon, for example. He was in the UK during the 1800s. Charles Spurgeon was universally hated in the American South because he preached boldly against the practice of what he called man-stealing. He said, I won't even sit down and have a meal with someone who does this. And it was him and men like William Wilberforce who were using scripture to show them this is completely unjustifiable to treat other human beings in this way. He was so universally hated, his sermons and his body were being burned in effigy across the American South. There have been faithful voices through every generation calling people back to the word of God and calling people out for distorting the word of God in order to justify sinful ends. And so in fact, whenever someone tries to take 
scripture. When they try to use the Bible in order to justify sex as being anything else, as a gift from God for a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage, anytime someone tries to use the Bible to justify something different from that definition, they're actually guilty of the same interpretive fallacies as those who use the Bible to justify sin. And so we have to be so, so careful that there's so many deceptive ways the enemy is trying to work. He wants to make you believe that what you have here is not sufficient. He wants you to believe that God left some stuff out and we need to figure out the rest of it on our own. Listen, God has spoken once for all and his word is not subject to change. He has not given us editorial freedom over the message of scripture. We're called to be faithful contenders for the gospel. We are called to contend for the faith that was once for all passed down to the saints and church. I understand, I think you know this already, but I just wanna remind you again this morning. Listen, if you're gonna do that as a Christian in the 21st century West, you're gonna be hated. Like you're not gonna be liked. You're going to face pushback. You're going to face opposition. And listen, that is not unique to you. We're not the first people to walk through these things. We're not the first people to engage these types of challenges through the centuries. If you're going to be a faithful contender for the gospel, just understand that pushback is coming from the world. This is what Peter writes back in the first century as well to encourage believers in this same challenge. First Peter 3, 14 through 16. He says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ as Lord, Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Don't miss this. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, not if you are slandered, when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So we contend for the faith. We need to be prepared to give a defense for the faith. And so that's on the one hand, we are absolutely called to fight the good fight of contending for the faith. And yet scripture is also clear, we need to do this with gentleness and respect. So this is the tension that I think that that sometimes is really confusing for us to walk in is, is yes and amen, God's word calls us to be contenders, but his word does not call us to be contentious. You see the distinction here. Now, th- think of an athlete who just lets his game do the talk, right? Like there's the one team, I'm watching a lot of NBA right now with the playoffs going on. And it seems like every team has that one guy who only scores like two points a game, but he's the biggest trash talker on the floor. It's like he doesn't have the game. So he just, he just runs his mouth the whole time. And so he tries to agitate the star player and he tries to cause problems. And, and, and then, you know, gets the crowd involved. And so the crowd is chanting and they're mocking. And yet what's that star player doing? He's not responding. He's, he's not pushing back on it. He's not feeding into it anyway. Instead, what he does is he just puts up 40 points and wins the game. And, and this is the type of person that God is calling us to be. Man, that doesn't mean that he's not a contender. I mean, he's clearly contending. He's clearly trying to win. He's giving his very, very best, but he's able to do it without being contentious. And this is who God calls us to be. Contend, compete, fight the good fight of faith, work to uphold sound doctrine and sound practice and sound living. But we have to be able to do these things without falling into the ways of the world. And so for some of us, this is gonna be the challenge as we contend for the faith. 
For some of us, the challenge is going to be contending for the faith without being contentious. Right, like some of us, man, we got no problem arguing with people whatsoever, right? We're like, fight, let's go, let's do this. Like throw down the gauntlet, ready to argue with anybody at, at any point in time. You know, I remember going through Bible college and seminary. Um, one of the most dangerous people on the planet to be around is somebody who is in their first year of Bible college or seminary. Um, they go through what we call the cage stage, which is they start to be exposed to teachings and to doctrines and to theology that maybe they didn't hear growing up. And then the very immature assumption is, well, because I have not ever heard these things before, Clearly no one else has either. So it is now my responsibility to educate all of you in how I'm right and how the rest of you have been missing these things. And, and here's the deal, like a lot of times they're right. Like I'm just telling you now transparently, you did not wanna know me between about the age of 18 and 21 because man, I was right and I was eager to tell you about it. Here's what you've been missing here. I'm, I've been to seminary, I've seen these things, I, I've done this. And, and so that's the issue sometimes. It's not that we're not right, it's just that we're jerks about it. And so nobody wants to listen to us. Nobody wants to hear anything that we have to say. We're, as, as Paul warned about, we're, we're, the, we're the noisy gong. We're the clanging cymbal. Everything we might be saying is true, but because we're approaching it in a way that's so unchristlike, nobody wants to hear what we have to say. So that's gonna be the challenge for some. It's contending without being contentious, but here is gonna be the challenge for others. It's going to be contending at all because you're struggling to overcome some level of cowardice. And this is where you have to be really, really careful. We have to be really, really careful because it's easy to say, well, I, I don't wanna cause division. I don't wanna generate unnecessary controversy. I don't wanna stir the pot. I don't feel like it's my place to speak into this. Listen, sometimes that might be true. We should use great wisdom in discerning. Do I get involved in this? How involved do I need to get in this? If I get involved, how do I need to approach these things? But let's make sure we're not using the excuse of not wanting to be contentious in order to cover our cowardice. Church, this is not a fight, that these are not issues that we have the freedom to just, just kind of step back and say, hey, I don't really think that this is, this is for me. You know, as I mentioned this in the first service, as, uh, as Shay and his family are here, I was talking to them in, in between the two services. What I said in the first service is, you know, we need to be aware that these things are already coming. They're coming from a perspective in the Anglican church where they're going, no, 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 they're not coming. They're already here. We're, we're seeing this, like they're literally in the midst of this today, trying to preserve the faith that has been once for all passed down to the saints. So we are called to contend. We're not called to be contentious and we cannot use the excuse of not wanting to be contentious to cover up our cowardice. So those are the faithful contenders. Now let's read Jude verse four. He warns, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. So we have seen the faithful contenders. Now, second, let's look at the faithless pretenders. There's a clear distinction between these two groups. Faithful contenders are called Faithful contenders are beloved, they are kept, and may mercy and love and peace be multiplied to them. But faithless pretenders are described as almost the exact opposite. Jude shows us that pretenders are deceptive. He says in verse four, certain people have crept in unnoticed. 
Faithless pretenders are deceptive. They, they work by deception. They are subversive in their efforts. They want to infiltrate the church quietly and bring false teaching with them. They, they're not gonna announce it usually on the way coming in and not always necessarily gonna make it known. Uh, recently, one of my boys had a soccer game and uh, it, was, it was a really good game. It was, it was like a 2-2 game, just a couple minutes left. And, and then uh, our team scored a goal. Uh, with a couple minutes left in the game, they go up 3-2. And it had been a pretty physical game, kind of tense. And, and, and so uh, it, it gets about a minute left in the game, and the other team gets a corner kick. And if you're not familiar with soccer, corner kick just takes the ball to the corner of the field. And you know, they're trying to fire a shot on goal and, and see if they can score from that distance. It's a free kick from, from the corner. And uh, we'd noticed this earlier in the game, but it had not been an issue. And the side of the net of this goal, there was a hole that had been ripped in it. And so the other team takes this corner kick and instead of going out in front of the goal, it actually goes through the side of the goal and then comes back out into the field of play. Now, if you don't know the rules of soccer, that means it's just out of bounds. Like it's out of bounds and now it's supposed to be a goal kick for that team. But the referee had kind of been on the opposite side of the field and he didn't quite see that the ball had gone through the side of the net and had rolled back in the field of play. So uh, my son's coach was like yelling at them, all right, it's a goal kick. You guys go ahead and get back. So they stopped playing. Well, the whistle had not blown. And so the other team kept playing and then they score a goal. Well, at that point in time, everybody's just freaking out, Right. Because the kids are like, what the heck just happened? It's supposed to be a goal kick. We thought it was out of bounds. The coach was yelling one thing. And, and, and then uh, the referee allows play to continue. They've got another play that like goes down injured. And then he drifts off to the side. And he's like arguing with the coaches about what really happened. And, and then by then all the parents are like, hey, blow your whistle and stop the game. Like this is just pure chaos right now. Because parents, like we take this stuff way more seriously than our kids do, right? Like we have seen an injustice committed in broad daylight and these poor referees, nobody likes them, right? Like they're totally thankless task. Everybody's ready to just, just come down on it. So it was pure chaos. Now, integrity move, uh, the other team's coach came out, was like, that wasn't a goal. You got to take it off. So good, good, good lesson for the boys there in the midst of their parents being crazy. And, and, and so you look at this whole situation, look at this whole situation and you're like, okay, well, who's to blame here? Well, the easy explanation seems to be the referee, right? Like, hey, you missed the call. Should have blown your whistle. That was clearly out of bounds. Chaos ensued. You could blame the referee. You could blame the coach. The coach was telling them, hey, stop playing. It's a goal kick. You could blame the players because they're trained to coach. Hey, play until the whistle blows and they stop playing. You could blame the parents because we're yelling stuff from the side and there was just chaos and confusion. All these boys are like, what is going on around us? It's, it's easy to assign blame in those different directions, but I think there's a deeper level here. None of this ever would have happened if there hadn't been a hole in the side of the net. The ball crept back into the field of play unnoticed. It came in in a direction that it wasn't supposed to come in. And so had the net just been closed, had there not been a hole in the net, none of this would ever happen. And church, this is what Satan is looking to do. He wants to find that small opening he wants to find that small opening and he wants to creep in. And by the time we realize what's going on, it's chaos. And we don't know what's right and what's wrong and we don't know what's good and what's evil and we don't know what's true and what's false. This is how he works. Jesus says that false teachers don't come to the sheep fold. They don't come into the church dressed like sheep. How do they come to the church? They're dressed like wolves. Scripture warns us Satan does not show up, the red guy with pitchforks, you know, with a pitchfork and horns. Like he, he comes, Scripture warns us, disguised as an angel of light. 
He looks welcoming. He looks inviting. He looks compassionate. He looks gracious. He looks merciful. Pretenders are deceptive. More than that, Jude shows us that pretenders are corrupt. It says they pervert the grace of God into sensuality. The Greek term for sensuality here is a term that refers to a lack of self-restraint, which involves one in conduct that violates all bounds of what is socially acceptable. So in the first century culture where this word was used, it was a word that was used to say, hey, these are things that pretty much everybody agrees, like this is no good. Things that were obviously contradictory to the truth that's revealed in scripture. And, and most often this word is used in connection with sexual sin. Uh, next week, we'll see how Jude uses Sodom and Gomorrah as an illustration of, of carrying out this word. And while there's nothing new under the sun, while there are no new sins, while there's no new real teaching, just different manifestations, while there's nothing new under the sun, here in the West, over the last decade, theologically liberal churches have been perverting the grace of God in ways that would make first century Roman culture blush. Filling Christian, we're not talking about unbelievers here, okay? Let's make sure we draw this distinction. We're not talking about unbelievers. We're talking about people who profess to be followers of Christ, who are serving as leaders in his church. Filling pulpits today, we have men and women dressed in drag. We have, we have men and women who are living in openly immoral sexual relationships, unrepentant. Being preached from Christian pulpits today is the sexual exploitation of children. Being celebrated and defended from Christian pulpits today is bodily mutilation under the guise of self-affirming care. It's, it's brazenly contradictory to the truth that's been revealed to us, and there, there's no justification for it. There's no justification for it, which is why what false teachers do, that they want to take Scripture and twist it, manipulate it. It's just their own personal ball of Plato, right? I'm going to make it say what I want it to say. And it's, it's not that they're rejecting the authority of God's Word. They're actually trying to base it on the authority of God's Word. And to say that this is holy and that this is good and this is right in the eyes of God, they corrupt these things. They corrupt the truths that have been entrusted to us. And here is the deception. It is all justified with gospel language because God is grace, because God is loving, because God is merciful, because Jesus is accepting. They'll say, they'll say read the gospels. Is Jesus not for the outcast? Is he not for the one who is vulnerable? Is he not for the one that is oppressed? Is he not the one for the one who is hurt by the religious system? And you read it, are like, well, of course he was. But here is the extreme we've gone to from one generation to the next. We'll often hear the mantra that we have to hate the sin and love the sinner. And so previous generations, this is a generalization, but previous generations in a lot of ways, when it came to those who were struggling with sexual sin, when it came to those who were struggling with same-sex attraction or struggling with their gender identity, those churches went to the unhealthy extreme of hating the sin and hating the sinner. Because, because who got lost in all of that oftentimes were, were actually very faithful brothers and sisters in Christ who were not in any way trying to justify their lifestyle, who recognized, hey, this does not square up with God's word, but I'm struggling with this. But the moment they were honest about it, they were ostracized. And church, hear me loud and clear this morning. If the church is not a safe place for sinners, we've stopped being the church of Jesus Christ. And so we saw the error of some previous generations. They, they didn't oftentimes just hate the sin. They also hated the sinner. But then my generation, here's what I fear we've done. We've gone to the opposite extreme. 
we haven't just loved the sinner, now we're also loving the sin. We're not just affirming that the sin, we're now affirming the sin. And in many ways, the word of God is being used to do it. And this is exactly what Jude was writing 2,000 years ago to address. He says, you cannot pervert the grace of God to justify sensuality. Nothing is new under the sun. Listen, church, there have always been those in every generation of the church who try to use the word of God, who try to hide behind the grace of God in order to justify sexual sin. And if I could just, just get one word that I wanna press on a little bit here this morning. I wanna talk to those of you who have a really big heart and praise God for you. Like your heart is for the vulnerable, your heart is for the outcast, your heart is for the oppressed, your heart is for the person who's been hurt by the church. Praise God for you, we need you. And we're gonna continue needing you. But I need you to hear this this morning and you need to recognize Satan's coming for you. And what he is gonna try to do is take that big heart of yours to go beyond loving the sinner to affirming their sin. And he's gonna lead you to believe that you can lay aside the truth of God's word in the name of loving sinners who've been hurt by the church. And so we gotta do two things at once. We've got to be able to unequivocally own ways that we have failed with this in the past, but we have to be able to do it without allowing the line on truth to move. It's to be people who are compassionate towards sinners, but also to be clear about what it is that we believe. When you go back to the example of the Global South Fellowship of Anglican Churches, I'd encourage you to just go to YouTube today and watch a speech that Deacon Calvin Robinson gave while all this was unfolding um, just a couple of months ago. Because I've, it went viral and I praise God for that because I think it was just a textbook example of how he boldly stood on the floor right in the midst of all of these leaders and, and he was respectful uh, he did this with dignity. He did this with honor, but he spoke truth. He did all of these things. He didn't insult anybody. He wasn't after throwing hand grenades. He, he was respectful. He was honorable. He was it, but he held the line on truth. And man, we are gonna need examples of people like him because of what it is that we're experiencing every single day. Pretenders are deceptive and they're corrupt. Satan wants to pervert the gospel message. And because of their corruption, Jude also warns us that pretenders are condemned. He says long ago, they were designated for this condemnation. Long before their gospel perversions were preached, the prophets and Jesus himself warned that they would be preaching these things. And so this is fundamental difference between contenders and pretenders. Those who are contenders for the faith, we are beloved, we are called, we are kept. And God has been doing that work from eternity past. And yet in the same way, the prophets had already marked these guys out. They had warned they're coming. And ultimately they're going to be condemned for the things that they do. Again, it goes against every modern sensibility that we have. Church, we've got to get a lot more comfortable saying false teachers are not true Christians. But we've got to get a lot more comfortable saying false teachers are not true Christians. That means we don't go to their conferences and buy their books and just kind of learn to chew the meat and spit the bones. No, no, we, we avoid them. We mark them and we avoid them completely. You know, Peter, again, as he wrote uh, his letter around the same time Jude was writing this letter, was addressing this issue as well. And he warns in 2 Peter 2, 1 through 3, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality 
And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. This is the key difference between faithful contenders and faithless pretenders. Faithless pretenders are not submitted to the lordship and the authority of Jesus Christ. To corrupt his word is to reject him. They're not submitted to the lordship and the authority of Jesus Christ. They are not like Jude. They are not bondservants of Jesus Christ who have recognized his lordship, recognized his authority, submitted themselves to him and faithfully honor him by upholding and preserving his word. And, and this is why that foundation is important is because if you're not first and foremost submitted to Jesus as your Lord, you won't contend for the faith. If you've not been called by God, you will not uphold your calling to contend for the faith. If you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, you will not stand for your beliefs. If you are not kept by Jesus Christ, you won't keep the faith. But if you are called and you're beloved and you're kept, you will contend for the faith. Church, these aren't trivial matters. Jude reminds us in these 25 verses in this letter, eternity is at stake. And there's not like a neutral ground third way here. There are either faithful contenders or there are faithless pretenders. Mark Dever uh, is a pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. And he said this in a talk a few years ago, very pointed words. He said, a church confused about the gospel is like a blind Uber driver. It's like a forgetful historian. It's like a colorblind artist. A church confused about the gospel is worse than worthless. It is a blocked emergency exit. It is an elevator to hell. These are not trivial things. These are not trivial things. These are life and death things where eternity is at stake. So here's our response to all this this morning. And this is gonna be quick application today. We're gonna carry this out a lot more over the next couple of weeks. So, so here's our response this morning, two simple applications for us. First response, know who you are and the blessing that is yours. Know who you are and the blessing that is yours. If you have surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, you are called, you are his beloved, you are kept, and he is never letting you go. And may grace and mercy and peace be multiplied to you. That is what God has in store for those who are the faithful contenders who preserve his word. So know who you are in the blessing that is yours. Second, contend for the faith and be on guard against error. Do you know why you, what you believe and why you believe it? Maybe what you need to do today is just, just go home, go to our church website, just go look at our doctrinal statement. Just, just browse through it and look at the corresponding scriptures. Make sure we understand what it is we believe and why it is that we believe it. Join some of the Bible studies. There, there's a pamphlet in your seat and Dave's gonna talk about that a little bit more here shortly. How can you surround yourself with others who can help you grow in your understanding of faith so that, so that when error does come, you've got a protective force around you, other brothers and sisters in Christ who can help you discern what is right from what is wrong. So we want to avoid contentiousness as we contend, but we also want to avoid cowardice. We don't want to hide behind the excuse of not wanting to be contentious in order to justify the fact that we're really just afraid. You can only contend for the faith that was once for all passed down if you know the faith that was once for all passed down. So here's what we're gonna do as, as we close together this morning and for the few weeks that we do this message series together. 
Um, We're gonna close here today by saying together the words of the Apostles' Creed. Um, We're going to confess our faith together. And many of you might not have grown up in a a liturgical tradition or faith that recited any of the creeds or catechisms, but what these creeds are helpful for doing, it's for helping us memorize and understand, hey, what are the sound doctrines? What are the things worth fighting for? What was under attack in the earliest days of the church? And and how can we take truths from scriptures and and put them into statements that we can rehearse and we can memorize and we can know so that when we hear error, we can quickly discern that it is error. And so we're gonna say together here the words of the Apostles' Creed. This will be on the screen. If you'll read this out loud with me as we close our time here. We believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he will come again to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Church, these are the hills worth dying on. This is the faith that has once for all been passed down to the saints and we are called to preserve this gospel message as we preach this gospel message. Will you bow our heads with me as we close? Father, as we come to the table this morning and as we remember your son, Jesus Christ, as we observe this ordinance that you would give us that proclaims this gospel message, help us to come confessing sin, help us to come in the posture of repentance, Help us to come rejoicing and celebrating the finished work of your son, Jesus Christ. And let what we observe at this table translate to the message that we preach as we go from this place. Thank you that through the generations you have preserved the faith and help us now to pick up that mantle and that responsibility. As we preach the gospel and make disciples, we want to do this in a way that honors you. So encourage us in boldness today by your Holy Spirit to be people who contend for the faith that has once for all been handed down to the saints. Thank you for your good news. Thank you for the gospel. We remember it now as we come to this table and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Everyone said, amen.